Take your Bible and find with me uh, the book of Genesis chapter 2 this morning. We'll look there. Let me say what a privilege it is to be back at Cloverleaf. I am so thankful to be here. It is good to see what God is doing. I believe it was two years ago that I was here at this same time of year. And just to see the before and where we are now and the future and the hope that you have here, it is amazing to see what God is doing. I love your pastor. Brother Sam has been a friend for these 10 years. It's hard to believe that. And uh, he, has, um, he hasn't aged. I definitely have. But that was because of the time that he was with us. I aged 10 years in that summer that he was there. He called me up with a really simple invitation and, uh, to come speak th- this morning. He, he called me up and said, Dr. Lance, do you believe in free speech? And I said, uh, absolutely. He said, we'll come to Cloverleaf and give one. So that's why I'm here this morning. Uh, it, it's easy for us to, to uh, imagine Sam being that way. He's always been very frugal, and I appreciate that about him. So uh, you have that blessing of a free speech this morning, I suppose. Uh, I am very short-winded. Uh, my, my philosophy of preaching is like a chicken laying an egg on the middle of a busy highway. You lay it on the line and get out of the way. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. As I want to speak to you about how God meets our needs. Uh, this is something that God has been showing me in the last four weeks I've been studying. I actually preached it in chapel at Pensacola on Friday. And so impressed with this on my heart, I felt like I should preach, with you this, preach to you this morning the very same message. God does meet our needs, but the problem is sometimes we forget the difference between needs and wants. When my son was younger, probably five or six years of age, we were at Walmart standing in line in the checkout, and uh, you know what it's like in the checkout line at Walmart. What's on either side of you as you stand in that checkout line? Candy. And my five or six-year-old son at that time went over and he grabbed a bag of Skittles and he brought it to me and didn't say a word, just put it in my hands. And I knew that uh, it was about time for supper. We'd be heading home. We wouldn't, he didn't need that. So I said to him, now, now, son, you put that back. You don't need those Skittles. And he just stood there without saying a word and continued to stare at me like, well, Dad, I, I, you're going to do something here. So I I decided to make it a teachable moment. I I said, now, son, you need to understand something. There's a difference between a need and a want. You don't need those Skittles, but you want those Skittles. Put the Skittles back. You don't need them. He stood there for just a little bit longer, and he looked up at me, and he said, without missing a beat, he said, but, Dad, I need these Skittles to satisfy my want. So... uh, Now, the truth of the matter is, our Heavenly Father wants to meet our needs, and He even meets a number of our desires and our wants. But the purpose of our study this morning is to consider how God meets our needs. The truth is that God does promise to meet our needs. Philippians 4, verse 19, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We believe and we trust the promise that he will meet the need, but here's the problem. We often don't appreciate the process in which he meets the need. 
From the beginning of time, humanity has had needs, and God has been faithful to meet them. So as I was studying Scripture, I began to notice the process of God meeting Adam's need in the garden. Look in Genesis 2, and let's read together verses 18 through 23, if we could. Genesis 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him an help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man." The very first need that humanity ever had been presented was prior to the fall, prior to the curse of sin, it was the need of companionship. God is walking through his creation and he sees the majestic mountainscapes, the lush landscape. He sees the the vast oceans and seas. He sees the creation of the fowls of the air. He, He sees all of these wonderful animals he has created and there he finds Adam walking through the garden. And as he's looked at the mountains and the seas, and as he's looked at the creation, he has said, it is good. But there is Adam wandering through that garden by himself, and he says, it is not good that man should be alone. I'm thankful to say this morning that God is not some uncaring, distant deity who simply identifies the problem but never offers the solution. God identified the problem, loneliness, lack of companionship, lack of a helpmeet, and he began the process to meet the need in Adam's life. The truth is, as we all gather here in this church this morning, in this, this, this congregation of before God, we all come here as needy people. All of us have needs. Your need may be the same need that Adam had, the need for companionship. For others, it may be a different need. It may be an emotional need, a spiritual need, a financial need, a physical need. Whatever it may be, though, all of us have some level of need that we seek God to meet. So for a few moments, I'd like for us to consider how God meets our needs based on the example of God's work in Adam's life from the beginning. I think there's four principles we can glean from these verses this morning of how God meets our needs even today. The first principle is this. I call it the omniscience principle. The omniscience principle. The omniscience principle is this, that God is all-knowing. You see, God knows everything because he is not limited by time. All we know is what we know yesterday, what we have today, but we have a hope for tomorrow, but we don't know for certain. God is outside the boundary of time. He is eternal. And the Bible says that he knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. God, in his limitless knowledge, knowing all things, notice this, knew Adam's need even before Adam knew he had a need. 
the eternal God knew that there was a need in Adam's life. As Adam walked in time, he didn't recognize that need, but God said, I see a need and I will make a help need for him. Adam had an unrealized need. That, that unrealized need in business and marketing is something that's called a latent need. If you're in, in business, if you're in advertising, if you're, uh, if you're someone who's trying to grow or have a spirit of, uh, of entrepreneurship, you always are looking to meet a latent need. This is how you define a latent need in business. It is a, a need that cannot be satisfied due to a lack of information or the availability of a product or service. More, per, more to the point in plain language is this. A latent need is a problem that a user or a consumer doesn't realize they have. An example of a latent need in our time, in our age, goes all the way back really to 1876. When Alexander Graham Bell invented, say it out loud with me, what did he invent? He invented the telephone. Now, for centuries, if not millennia prior to 1876, it was a latent need. No one knew that we needed a telephone. 1876, he, he called Watson from his office on this new invention and said, Mr. Watson, will you come here? And immediately, the, the communication world was changed tremendously. Within the first 25 years, by 1901, we're told that in the eastern coast of the United States, one out of every 10 homes had a phone in it. Fast forward to the 1950s and to the 1970s, to the time when I was born. I remember we had a phone in our home. It was one of those old rotary dial phones. You know what I'm talking about? And you only had one phone in your, in your house, and it had a cord that was 100 feet long, so you could go wherever you wanted to. And when someone would call, you would, if you wanted privacy, you'd take that 100-foot cord into the, into the closet, and you would have a conversation with them. That was when you, that was when you were private. You know how, 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 you, uh, how you would uh, block other people's phone calls? You would take the phone off the hook. You remember that? My, my grandmother had a phone that was still the old style when I was growing up. It was called a party line. How many of you are old enough to remember a party line? A party line was when a multiple, uh, uh, multiple neighbors would share one single line, and when you would pick up the phone, if someone was talking, you were to put the phone back down until they finished their conversation. Now, my grandmother never did that. She kept the phone up to her ear and kept listening. But isn't it amazing how that the phone has grown so much in almost 150 years? From a man in his office saying, Mr. Watson, will you come here to most of the East Coast, 10% of the East Coast having a phone to the 50s, to the 70s, to the 80s. And I dare say, as we sit here in 2022, I dare say that most of us, if not all of us, have a phone on our body right now. We're carrying it with us in our purse or in our pocket. We call it a, say it with me, a cell phone. All of us cannot live without our cell phones, it seems. I, I can't. I'll be the first to raise my hand. I, I have my calendar in there. I'm connected with my family. I'm connected with my coworkers. I, I have all of the, the plans that I, I can access my sermon notes if I have to from my cell phone. Everything that I need is in that phone. Had I been born before 1876, I would have had a latent need. Had no idea that I needed it until it actually arrived. Now, I say all that to say this, that the first human who ever experienced a latent need was Adam himself. He was the first to have a need that he didn't even realize he needed. 
You know, Jesus addressed this principle of latent need in Matthew chapter 6. Pastor read the latter portion of Matthew chapter 6, but let me read this verse 2 in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 8. Your father knoweth what things you have need of, listen to this, before you ask him. The eternal God, not limited by the boundary of time, knows your need even before you ask him. And may I go a step further, your, your limitless God, your, your sovereign, omniscient God knows your need that you don't even know that you have at this point. The very next verse in Matthew chapter 6 is Jesus giving us the model prayer. He, after he says, your father who knows all things that you need of before you ask him, he said, pray in this manner, our father which art in heaven, hallowed be, my, be thy name. When my little girl was trying to quote that for her Awana class. She was uh, studying and practicing it, and she said, Our Father who art in heaven, I know you know my name. And I, I, I know it's textually incorrect, but that's great theology at the same time. Amen? That the Father in heaven knows you by name. Do you believe that? Say amen if you do. But here's a second thought. Not only does he know you by name, he knows your need. Even more than the personal relationship that you have with him, there is personal involvement in your life. He knows your need, even needs you don't even recognize that you have. The first principle is this, the omniscient principle, omniscience principle. God knew Adam's need before Adam knew he had a need. Here's a second thought for us. I call it the preparation principle. God cultivated the need in Adam's heart before he met it. God began to work in Adam's life in such a way that he would recognize the need and he would recognize that it was only God who could meet that need. You're still in Genesis chapter 2. Look again at verse number 19. The Bible says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names unto all the cattle and the fowl of the air and to Every beast of the field. Now notice what happens here. In the process of cultivating this need in Adam's heart, the Bible says in verse 19 that God brought the animals to Adam. And he said, Adam, you name these Adams. Now why did God bring the animals to Adam? God could have named those animals himself. In fact, we're told in Psalm 147 verse 4, that God tells the numbers of the stars, the countless stars of the universe, God tells them and he calls them by their names. If the creator of the universe can count the myriad stars of the darkened sky, why cannot the God in Genesis chapter 2 name the animals? It was not for the lack of ability on God's part. It wasn't that he needed Adam's help, but in fact he was helping Adam. And he was saying to Adam, I want you to notice something. As you're naming these animals, as I bring these animals to you, I want you to notice some things that occur. I want you to notice that in the creation, I've created these animals, male and female. I want you to notice that when Mr. Cat comes, there's a Mrs. Cat there. And when Mr. Giraffe comes, there's a Mrs. Giraffe there. And when Mr. Hippopotamus comes, Mrs. Hippopotamus, I don't think any woman ever wants to be called Mrs. Hippopotamus, but that's neither here nor there. 
I want you to notice the gender that is there. You say, how do you know that, Dr. Lance? Because when you read verse number 20, it's in the context of an epiphany on, day, on Adam's part. The Bible says, verse 20, And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an helpmeet for him. The word found has the idea of encounter. He didn't encounter a helpmeet for him. If the cat, if the giraffe, if the hippopotamus, if the animals had a mate, there was no mate for him. And in the process, God was cultivating, God was preparing the heart of Adam to recognize a need that at that point he didn't even realize that he had. Now notice how he cultivated that need, if you would please. He cultivated the need through a work in his life, but also through the work that he was doing. Genesis 2 verse 15 says that God put Adam in the garden to, dr to dress it and to keep it. The word dress that is used there is the idea of working and laboring. This is before the fall of man. Some people believe that work is the result of the curse. That's not true. Work was occurring prior to the curse. What did occur, though, when the curse occurred was that there was thorns and thistles, the sweat of the brow. Work was a different distinction at that point. But he had a responsibility, an assignment, a work to do, and in that, God was using that work to help him see the need that was in his life. He gave him an assignment within the context of dressing and keeping the garden. You name the animals. And did you realize this morning that God is doing the same thing for you right now? The things that you're working through, the things that you're dealing with now, God is preparing you for something that you have need of in the future that you don't even realize that you have. Maybe it's a relationship that as try as much as you try to live peaceably with them, you're, you're working as hard as you can to get along with them. And, and may I say to you that God is going to help you through that and God is going to prepare you for future relationships, future difficult uh, relationships to navigate. Perhaps you're working through some emotions of a, of a broken heart, perhaps an unmet expectation. You're working through all of those things and I promise you it is not for, van uh, for vanity, it is not empty. God uses is everything for a purpose, and in doing so, he's preparing you to do a work in your life. I look back on my life this morning, and I recognize how God has prepared me for various needs and opportunities that I never dreamed I would have. But it required that he bring me to per certain places in my life to, to help me understand as I reach those locations, those ministries, those opportunities, what I would do. Let me give you the example personally. When my wife and I were married, by the way, my wife and my daughter are here, and I'm so grateful they're able to be with me this morning. When my wife and I were married, July 31st, 1993, we immediately, two weeks later, hopped on a plane and flew to Anchorage, Alaska, and began full-time Christian ministry at Anchorage Baptist Temple in Anchorage. Alaska. Now, I'll be honest with you, I did not want to go to Anchorage, Alaska. You know why I didn't want to go to Anchorage, Alaska? It's called White S-N-O-W. Can I have an amen right there? I wanted to be somewhere warm. I wanted to be somewhere where the sun would shine. I didn't like 24 hours a day of darkness, but God had a different plan. 
And my wife and I made that first trip, fresh out of seminary and college. We went to, Pens- uh, we went to Anchorage, Alaska and began to serve. And looking back on those year, the, that year and a half that we were there, I, I began to realize, now I can realize, that God was preparing me for various things in my ministry. Number one, the pastor that I worked for, who was out of my home church in, in Oliver Springs, Tennessee, was a strong administrator. And I can say this with all sincerity. On the practical matters of leading and administrating a church, I learned more from Dr. Jerry Prevo than any other person, any other seminary or college class that I ever experienced. It was practical on-the-job training. I also learned about how to deal with personalities. The people of Alaska are people of a pioneer spirit. It's still even uh, clear today. They're just just very, very rough and ready, very independent in their spirit. And I I learned to deal with those personalities, how to handle those, those different perspectives. And little did I realize that years later I would be going to a state that was exactly like that same spirit, the Mountaineer state, the West Virginia state. I look back and I see how God prepared me in those early years to take me to a place that, quite honestly, I didn't want to go to then, but allowed me to be there for 23 years. And God, in his plan, was preparing me one step at a time as I went along the way. What you're going through today, what you're dealing with right now, what you're facing right now is not in vain. God is using it to prepare you, to cultivate you. For the next need that he brings into your life. Number one, it is the omniscient principle. God knew Adam's need before Adam knew he had a need. It's the preparation principle. That that God cultivated the need in Adam's heart before he met it. But here's a third principle for us. It's called the rest principle. For Adam to have his need met, he had to rest in God's power. You have your Bible open. Look at verse number 21. After Adam is beginning to realize, I don't have a help me. All of creation does. I don't have one. The Bible says the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. Now, I recognize that that is literal sleep, deep sleep. It's not figurative, but I'm using it to make an application in the figurative for each of us, that we must rest in the Lord. You say, well, Dr. Lanz, I understand deep sleep. I'm already in the third stage of anesthesia as you're preaching this morning. I hope you'll rouse up just a little bit and understand what I'm saying here. That for God to do a work in our life, we have to rest in him. The bottom line is that that, that Adam couldn't find the solution that he needed until he rested in the Lord to provide it. And the same is true for you and I. Here's a familiar verse in the New Testament. It's Jesus' invitation to all of us, Matthew 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, say it out loud with me, rest. Come unto me, all ye that are... Uh, labor, all you that labor, all you that are worn out. How many of you had a rough week last week? Don't raise your hand. All you that are worn out, come unto me. How many of you are burdened down, weighed down? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then Jesus goes a step further in verse 29, and he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. There's a rest that God gives. 
when you're weighed down, when you're worn out, there's a, there's a supernatural rest of sorts that he gives to help you get through the things that you're facing. But there's also a rest that you find, that you learn as you serve God, as you come alongside him in the yoke of ministry. You begin to find that rest into your souls. But the problem is we, we don't go that extra mile to, to find that rest. Can I tell you how you find that rest? Let me give you another verse. You might write it in your notes. Psalm 37, verse number 5, if you would, please. Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit thy way unto the Lord, and trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall, shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Verse 7. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Before you can rest in the Lord, though, it requires that you commit your way to the Lord. That word commit that is used there is an interesting word. Literally, it means to roll. Roll your way on the Lord. It, it could be used in the context of a business transaction or a banking transaction of short, sorts. It, it could be like deposit, roll, deposit your way on the Lord. Here's a better way to put it. Transfer your way to the Lord so it's His way. I don't think it's improper to, to translate it this way. Transfer your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall direct your path. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is that we are so many times identifying our needs and trying to solve the problem ourselves that we trip ourselves up when all we have to do is say, Lord, it's in your hands. I commit my way to you, and I'm simply resting in you. It's not my will, Lord, but yours. I'm resting in you. I think of this story every time I read in Psalm 37. I think of my, when I was a little boy. You know, you know, you know you're getting older when you think more about your younger years than you do about the future ahead. So I must be getting really old. But I, I remember growing up, my, I never knew my grandparents on my mom and dad, or my dad's side. I only knew my Aunt Oma. She was the matriarch of the family, and she practically had raised all of my, my, uh, my dad's uh, brothers and sisters and so she was like my grandmother and my dad would take good care of her because of that she never drove never drove a day in her life and anywhere she went my dad always took her she had lived in dandridge tennessee for a period of time that was about an hour and a half from where we lived in rockwood tennessee i remember when i was about five six seven years of age uh, my dad needed to take her to Dandridge to get something for some reason, and uh, we, we went together. So my mom was working. My dad took my Aunt Oma up to Dandridge, Tennessee. We hopped in the old Plymouth, uh, 1975 Plymouth, and we made our way up to, the, uh, up to Dandridge, Tennessee. I love that old Plymouth. didn't have one seat belt in it whatsoever. I remember back then you didn't wear a seatbelt, and I remember I would get up in the dash of the window in the back and lay in the back as we would go and enjoy the sun, and that was just normal back in those days. We were crazy people back in those days. Now, my Aunt Oma was one who was always fearful to travel. Have you ever met, you may have a wife like this, and if it is, don't nudge her, don't poke her, don't make fun of her, but have you, do you, have you ever met someone that when they're driving, and they're, or when you're driving and they're on the passenger side, they're just constantly pushing the imaginary brake that's on the passenger side? Or they're, or they're trying to grip themselves every time you come to a stop? My Aunt Oma was the exact same way. She was the exact same way in the fact that she was so nervous as she would travel. And I remember on that trip, 
we were going to, da- to Dandridge, Tennessee, as I, as, I w- as I was just wallowing around in the back seat of that car, I fell asleep somewhere along the way. And at about the time we began to pull into my cousin's home there in uh, Dandridge, Tennessee, I began to wake up. And man, it felt so good that the warm sun coming through the, the windows of that Plymouth. I, I was awakened, I, I was refreshed, had the full energy to run out and play. And then there was my Aunt Oma, who for the last hour and a half had just been so uptight traveling that she could not even get out of the car. She was so miserable from that fear. Now, here's the comparison that I want to make. In the journey of life, we can either travel and trust our Father and rest in Him to get us to where He's going to take us. Or we can be like my Aunt Oma, who didn't trust my Father. And she was trying to control, contrive, manipulate, be uptight. I'm here to tell you, folks, that God will do the work in you and get you where you need to be. And it's a far better experience when you rest in the Lord. Let me give you a fourth principle and we'll be finished. That's the sweetest words in any Baptist church. Amen. The omniscience principle, God knew Adam's need before Adam knew he had a need. The preparation principle, God cultivated the need in Adam's heart before he met it. The rest principle, for God to have met the need, he had to rest, Adam had to rest in God's power. Here's the fourth principle, the extraction principle. God took something away from Adam to give him what he needed. Genesis 2 verse number 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs. Circle that word took if you would please. He took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman. And notice this and brought her unto the man. Circle that word brought if you would please. Now I want you to notice that this is an observation. This is not a 100% application in all of our lives. But I can say as I've lived the life of serving Christ that there have been times that God has taken things away. Things that I thought were important. Things that I thought were so valuable to my life. And I recognize that after he took it away, he would replace it with something far better. Literally, in the account of creation, God reached inside of Adam. God did a work in the very being of Adam, and he took away a rib. He, he opened up his body, and he, he extracted a part of Adam's skeletal frame. And I dare say, before Adam knew the result of this divine surgery, if he were to be asked, Adam, do you think you need that rib? I need that rib. That rib holds my frame together. It holds my stomach in place. My, my entrails are all encaged in that, in, that, in that rib. I need that rib. For some of you here today, God may be ripping something from not your body, but from your very soul. And you say, I need that. I've got to have that. The principle that I believe we can glean from Genesis chapter 2 is this. That God often takes the lesser to meet the greater need. That's what he did with Adam. He took the lesser, the, the rib, to be the instrument that would be used to meet the greater need, a helpmeet. And I dare say after 
Adam had met Eve for the very first time, maybe even years after he had been with her as he recounted the, 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 the story of how he first met his beautiful bride. One of the grand or great-grandchildren would say, uh, Granddaddy Adam, w- would you rather have your rib or would you rather have Eve? And he would sit back and say, I would much rather have Eve than I would have had that rib. And I can look back in many ways and see how that there were things that God had taken out of my life that I thought were so vitally important. But God had another plan to do a greater work. Relationships. I have a beautiful wife. I'm so thankful for my wife. We'll be married 30 years next year. Any woman who can put up with me for 30 years deserves a crown in heaven. You can say amen right there even if you don't believe it. But I've got to be honest with you, she's not the first girl that I dated. She wasn't the first girl I was serious with. God had to rip some things out of my life. And I look now and I see that what I thought was so vitally important, God did a better work and gave me exactly who I need to share my life with. You may have experienced a job opportunity that was taken from you. Something you knew that was God's will. You prepared for it. You knew that this is what God wanted you to do. God took that away. But it's not for naught. God has a plan. And he takes the lesser to give you the greater as you rest in him. I can say there's been ministry opportunities I knew was God's will, but God took those those away. I can testify, and others in this place can testify, that God sometimes does that work. And in the moment, we are wounded. Adam was physically wounded. We are wounded in that moment, but God is doing a work, and I promise you it is worth the wait as you trust him. So despite whatever pain you have at the extraction side of your soul, Trust in him. God will give you the greater as you rest in him. Several years ago, I was reading an article in Creation Magazine. Dr. Carl Weiland is a family practice physician, and he had written a piece about a testimony of his experience of, a, of, of going through an, a horrific tractor-trailer accident, a head-on collision with a tractor-trailer. He survived that uh, accident, but he had a number of follow-up surgeries. And as a result of that, he had written what he had learned from that experience uh, in Creation Magazine. Forgive me for reading this, but it so, uh, so touched my heart and helped me understand some things that I feel like I want to read it to you this morning. This is what Dr. Wyland had written. He said, a head-on impact with a fully laden fuel tanker at a highway speed is an experience I would hope for none to share. The surprise was that I survived it. God clearly had other plans for me. During the five and a half months in the hospital for years, and for years afterwards, I had a series of operations to reconstruct various parts of me, particularly the bones of my face. These operations often required using my own bone for grafting. I noticed that the plastic surgeon would keep going back to the right side of my rib cage through the same horizontal scar actually to get more bone for these procedures. One day I asked him if, why he hadn't run out of bone. 
And he looked at me blankly, and then he began to explain that he and his team had taken out a whole rib each time. The doctor said, we remove the periosteum, in, uh, we leave the periosteum intact so that the rib usually will grow back in approximately six months. Dr. Wyland said, despite being trained and practicing as a family doctor, I was intrigued. I'd never realized this before. The periosteum, literally for the word's meaning, it means around the bone. The periosteum is a membrane that covers every bone. The periosteum contains cells that can manufacture new bone, particularly in young people. Rib periosteum is the remark, has the remarkable ability to regenerate bone and perhaps more than any other. When the surgeon initially told me this, my immediate thought was, wow, that is so neat. Adam didn't have to walk around with a defect. Surprisingly, some Christians have grown up believing that men have one less rib than women. But they have the same number, of course. Listen to his conclusion. He wrote, however, this information about rib regrowth adds a new and fascinating dimension. God designed the rib along with the periosteum. And the God who designed the rib with the ability to regrow would certainly been able to remove the rib in such a way that he could give Eve to Adam and even allow the rib to grow back later, just as ribs still do today. I read that and I thought, man, what an amazing design God has in the human anatomy. That God has created us in such a way that we can even regenerate a bone from our rib. But even more amazing than that fact is the astounding fact of how God meets our needs. That often the things that we think are irreplaceable, God will remove them for a time to give us, to refocus us, to place us in a position that we understand the greater need. And then that that we thought was irreplaceable can be replaced. It's a principle of God that he often takes the lesser irreplaceable rib to meet the greater irreplaceable need, in Adam's case, Eve. When I was a teenager, there was a song we used to sing. I think it kind of reflects the extraction principle. And I didn't like this song, but we sung it. The the chorus says this, Take my houses and my lands, take my dreams, change my plans, for I'm placing my whole life in your hands. And if you call me today to a place far away, Lord, I'll go and your will obey. I'll trade sunshine for rain, comfort for pain. That's what I'd be willing to do for whatever it takes for my will to break. That's what I'd be willing to do. I remember as a 15-year-old boy hearing that song and thinking to myself, I do not want to go to Africa and be a missionary. But that's what that verse said to me. I'll go wherever you call me to go. But now as I look back as a 50-year-old man, And I look at my life, and I begin to realize that God, in his divine plan, while he didn't call me to be a missionary overseas, he did call me to go to Alaska. That was pretty close. He did send me to the mission field of West Virginia. And in all of those places in my life, he prepared me, and he allowed me to be where I am in this moment. 
He met a need that I didn't even know I had a need at that time. And can I tell you, I have learned, and I can say this with a full, open heart of testimony before you. It is better to rest in him and let him do his work and allow him to finish the journey for you. I'm reminded of the words of Job. Job, on that day when he had lost pretty much everything other than his wife, lost his health, his wealth, everything. He sat in ashes and he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That's the hard extraction principle of a Christian life, isn't it? The Lord gives, but he takes away. But Job had to learn to rest, and he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you read that in chapter 1, you have to go through 41 other chapters to get to chapter 42. When you come to chapter 42, the Bible says that when, when Job began to pray for his friends, that God turned the captivity. He changed the, 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 the negatives of Job's life. And everything that he lost, the Lord doubled. He had lost in chapter 1 7,000 sheep, but now God gave him 14,000 sheep in chapter 42. He lost 3,000 camel in, in uh, chapter 1. God gave him 6,000 camel in chapter 42. He, he had lost 500 yoke of oxen in chapter 1, but now God has given him 1,000 yoke of oxen. He lost 500 donkeys in chapter 1, but now God has given him 500 donkeys, or 1,000 donkeys as well. He had lost seven sons and three daughters. And the Bible says that Mrs. Job had another ten children. You say, well, why didn't God double his children? God didn't need to. Those children were already in heaven that had passed on. He still blessed him with that double blessing of those children. I'm here to tell you something, folks. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel. I'm not preaching some false hope. But I am here to tell you this. God has a divine design and plan for every circumstance of your life. And what you counted as loss, I promise you, God will count it as gain. He will bless you. But it requires that you say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How does God meet our needs? He does so in an omniscient way. He knows our need before we even know we have a need. He, he prepares us. He, he cultivates that need in our lives before we even recognize we need that need to be met. He causes us to rest in him so that his power can be done. Not through our work or our ability. We rest in his power. And he sometimes takes away the lesser to give us the greater as we trust him. That God is our Jehovah Jireh, the one who truly will provide. Father, I thank you that you give us an example in your word from the very first human. Your